I would like to introduce you to the Gainesville 8. It was 1972. The Vietnam War had been raging for 17 years at that point, and the American public had grown beyond weary of it. Not only was it a proxy war meant to combat America's enemies in the Soviet Union, but it was killing American soldiers and the Vietnamese population in horrifying numbers. Several elections had come and gone, each election focusing at least in some part on America's presence in Vietnam. The American public, especially the young people of America, college students, had actively protested and marched against the war. Their generation had been protesting American policy for years up to that point. The civil rights movement and now the rising feminist movement had galvanized the youth of America toward progress. The American government was losing more and more trust, and that was in large part because of the president, Republican Richard Nixon. Think of Nixon now, and one word springs to your mind, Watergate. The controversies of the Watergate scandal were just about to become public knowledge in 1972. The actual event, the break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters at Watergate, was in June of 1972. The Republican National Convention, where Richard Nixon would be nominated as Republican candidate for president, began in late August 1972. It's about two months apart. The very first Watergate reporting by Washington Post journalists Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein was published on August 1st of 1972. So by the time the events surrounding the Gainesville 8 were occurring, the Watergate scandal was just getting started. Years of chaos and scandal would soon follow, but Nixon was already despised around the country, regardless of your party. The reason for his lack of popularity with Americans was because of one major act. In April of 1970, Nixon promised the withdrawal of troops, and less than two weeks afterwards, he announced a further invasion of Cambodia. More war just after he promised less war. The result in American cities, notably universities, was protest, and a lot of it. When four individuals were killed at Kent State University in Ohio by the Ohio National Guard while they were protesting Nixon's Cambodia announcement, it was a turning point. It began to feel like a clear divide was forming. The government was not listening to what the people wanted, and so the people would have to get louder. But that was 1970, this was 1972, and the Republicans are preparing to host the 1972 Republican National Convention, where they would nominate Richard Nixon for president, amidst rising concerns about his connection to the break-in at Watergate. The thing is, the 1972 Republican National Convention was held in Miami, Florida. Enter the Gainesville Eight. They were eight men, seven of whom were themselves veterans of the Vietnam War. The one who was not a veteran was named John Briggs. The remaining seven, all veterans, were Scott Camel, Alton Foss, John Niffen, Peter Mahoney, Stanley Mitchelson, William Patterson, and Don Perdue. Remember the name Scott Camel. We're going to talk about him later in this episode. If you look at a photo of these eight men, they look exactly how you would expect. Long hair, beards, headbands, hats, and military jackets with buttons on them. They were members of a group called the Vietnam Veterans Against War. They were planning on attending the convention down in Miami, and the veterans had organized in advance. You see, in 1968, protests around the Democratic National Convention got violent back in Chicago, which we talked about last week. The veterans didn't want that to be the case at their protest in Miami. They had, quote, planned a nonviolent demonstration to garner public support for peace, meeting with Miami police and conservative groups in advance to prevent conflicts similar to those seen in 1968 at the Democratic National Convention, end quote. That plan, however, fell apart, thanks to actions taken by the American government. 
Quote, their plans for a peaceful anti-war demonstration at the 1972 RNC were disrupted by law enforcement agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation on down to the Dade County Public Safety Department, who infiltrated the group and attempted to sway VVAW toward a more violent approach, end quote. The Gainesville 8, they believed that the government was planning to violently attack protesters in Miami, and so they allegedly planned violent retaliation to the government's acts against the protesters. But as I mentioned, there was an undercover FBI agent in their group, and the eight men were indicted for conspiracy. A trial would follow, and it was held in Gainesville, where they themselves protested, which is why they were called the Gainesville Eight. They never made it to the Miami protests of the Republican convention, though hundreds of others did, and hundreds in turn were arrested. At the end of the episode, we will talk about the fate of these men, but I tell you their story to highlight an essential fact. The people's distrust of the government and the government's distrust of the people was at an all-time high. Government informants were the ones who pushed the veteran group to more violent acts. Then the government informants got them arrested based on lies that they had told them in the first place. The cycle continued with no peace. The war was active in Vietnam, but back home, the war was between the American government and the people. That was never more evident than a year earlier in 1971, when the largest mass arrests in American history took place in Washington, D.C. An event that was a long time coming, an event that had ripple effects in Florida, an event that is called May Day. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, we're talking about the tensions between the people of the United States and the American government in 1971 and 1972, how the media responded, and the fascinating parallels between these protests and today. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, that's fine. These episodes kind of stand apart from one another. But if you want more backstory as to how America and how Florida got to the position that we are in in these anti-war protests in 1971, go check out last week's episode. The context of America from 1968 to 1971 is fascinating and complex, but May Day was a culmination of years of conflict. So let's dive into it. I want to tell you about May Day because... It has connections to Florida and it impacted things in Florida in the days immediately afterwards, though it isn't necessarily in and of itself a Florida story. I, I found this story because of this book that I have right here. It's called May Day 1971. It's written by a man named Lawrence Roberts. It is a great book. It goes in-depth into all of the events leading up to May Day, the event itself, the, the things, the, the fallout from it. So while this story and why I'm telling it to you, it, it doesn't necessarily have a very strong Florida connection. It is an important story that you need to know and it had huge immediate impacts on the state of Florida. It, it just changed the whole country realistically. And I had never heard of this event. So it was important to me to share what this event was and, and how it impacted the, the years afterwards, because frankly, it's something we need to hear more about nowadays. All right, so let's talk about May Day itself. Let's talk about the term May Day. It is a clever pun. Its double meaning actually works in a, in a very clever way. The term May Day, is, it's an actual holiday. It's celebrated on May 1st, but sometimes includes the days around May 1st as well. It celebrates the halfway point between the spring equinox and the summer solstice. And it's an old European holiday that has been celebrated for thousands of years. But May Day, as one word rather than two, is a distress signal used in radio calls. It means we're in danger, help us. So the protest being called May Day was a pun, both because the protests were held at the beginning of May, but also because it reflects how many Americans were feeling at the time. We are in danger. We need help. 
So you're going to be hearing some audio from a documentary about these May Day protests. I believe this documentary was made actually by the Metropolitan Police Department itself. So keep that in mind when you hear the way that they are framing the events. But it's a great documentary with a lot of excellent footage and, and some interesting uh, um descriptions of what happened the metropolitan police department was the department that was heavily involved in the may day protest so keep that in mind this whole doc can be found on the periscope film youtube channel i'll include a link so you can watch it yourself i do not own the rights to the video i'm just using this audio so you can learn more about the context of how it was written at the time because this documentary came out the same year as the may day protest so go check out periscope films youtube channel go check out this video to learn even more thank you to them the plan of may day was simple take over Washington DC so the American government would finally hear them out that sounds simple that's a funny thing that I just said <laughs> the plan was simple take over an entire city no they, they had specific coordinated actions that they were doing in order to shut down the, the capital of the country we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that across the country over the weeks leading up to May Day itself protesters who were connected to the event inspired by the same causes and tactics were blocking access to government buildings across the country that's health buildings IRS buildings especially uh, selective service buildings, which were the buildings that were handling the draft. All of them were crowded out by protesters who were, all were eventually broken up by the local police and, and many of them were arrested. According to this May Day documentary, a book was used called the May Day Tactical Manual, which provided advice on how to effectively block government buildings during these protests. The introduction of this book, the Mayday Tactical Guide, which I have a link so that you can check out a copy yourself, but the introduction of this book has a drawing of Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian revolutionary known for his nonviolent resistance. The introduction lays out a few ground rules. There are no national leaders, no national organizations. All the protests should be local, personal, and specific. The last line of the introduction reads, quote, As you read through, you will see that Mayday is an action, a time period, a state of mind, and a bunch of people be free, end quote. In a section titled, quote, on nonviolent civil disobedience, end quote, the document reads, quote, in brief, the aim of the May Day actions is to raise the social cost of the war to a level unacceptable to America's rulers. To do this, we seek to create the specter of social chaos while maintaining the support or at least toleration of the broad masses of American people. End quote. Essentially what they mean is they want to disrupt the active flow of the American government, make everyday bureaucratic life more difficult without alienating people through violence. That, that's what they mean by the social cost. You want these protests to stop? You, you want us to stop disturbing the everyday governmental life? Then you have to stop the war. That's the social cost. You have to see these things in the news. You have to face that people are upset about this. That, that was their plan, was to make it a big, public, visible protest so that people who didn't necessarily support the war already would feel even more inclined to be against the war because of the social cost of what they're doing. It's not necessarily just to disturb the, the function of the American government. It was to raise the profile of their cause through massive actions. Their plan, as laid out in this section, is as follows, quote, The objective is to close down the federal government sections of Washington, D.C. by blocking traffic arteries during the early morning rush hours of May 3rd and 4th, end quote. Simple. No government work can be done if they can't reach their place of work. They lay out a few ground rules. No fighting, no destruction, positive language towards soldiers, and general respect for the police, calling them, quote, a member of the working class who's simply on the wrong side. End quote. 
They go on to say, quote, we will be disobedient, which means no matter what anyone says, no matter what laws we break, we are going to reach our action target, the roads, bridges, and traffic circles leading into the federal areas of Washington, and we will not leave our action targets until we have succeeded in our target objective or until we are arrested, end quote. Remember that last part until we are arrested, that that is going to become a very important part of these protests as we talk about them now. One of those outcomes they predicted came true. This manual was found by the authorities and it includes more details. Tools needed to protest like wire cutters to split a chain link fence and locations where the blockades of roads would occur. It was coordinated, which certainly was a threatening thing for the authorities who found it. It seemed like a very coordinated, organized event thanks to this manual. It had certainly added to the evidence of what they were intending to do. Like I said, I'll include a link. I really recommend you going and reading this. The fact that this document has survived, that it was given out at the time, but the fact that we still have copies and can read it, it's a fascinating read just to understand the, the sort of mentality that was going into it, it, just to understand what the objectives were and how they went about doing it. It's a, it's a fascinating read. So that was the plan. May 3rd, May 4th, shut down the roads, get in the way. But they planned to start arriving over a week earlier on April 24th, and they planned to remain in the city for many, many days. So let's dive into that documentary I mentioned earlier a little bit now. It details that protest on the 24th as such. On April 24th, 1971, the National Peace Action Coalition, supported by welfare rights groups, labor unions, and others, held a massive demonstration in Washington, D.C. Some 175,000 people from all walks of life with differing ideologies and purposes marched from the White House to the Capitol. The footage here is just amazing. I, I really recommend you go check out this video. There's a sea of people around Washington, D.C. chanting in unison, marching as one, expressing their dissent on the topics at hand. Race, war, government spending, welfare programs, and their distrust of the government at large. It was, according to the documentary, a peaceful affair. And then... Most who came in the name of peace returned to their homes, jobs, or schools. But some who came to break the peace stayed on in West Potomac Park. For them, the April 24th rally was only a prelude to May Day, an opportunity to advance their own well-defined aim to shut down the federal government. All right, let's unpack that. The documentary is accurate. In the week after the protest, many people stuck around staying in a park along the Potomac River. Forty thousand people. They had a permit to protest and a permit to camp in the city, but their permit was privately canceled by the government, meaning the city police had full permission to remove them from the camp where the protesters believed that they were safe. Here's what the documentary has to say about that. They tell you about who was there, and then they tell you why the permit was canceled. They say the crowd got too big and it needed to be dispersed. They say that basically that they had broke the rules of the permit, and that's why the permit was canceled. I mean, there was a rock concert in the park. The crowd apparently broke the permit that had been given, according to this documentary. Here's what it has to say. By early Saturday morning, May 1st, armies of blue denim and khaki had streamed into West Potomac Park. Collegians, hippies, and high school students, professional freaks with their drugs and well-heeled agitators with pamphlets and newspapers. Subsequent investigations and arrests showed 75% of the participants came from outside the Washington area. These repeated and flagrant violations of the park permit 
which was negotiated and accepted by the May Day leaders, left no alternative but for the government to close the campsite down. It was up to Chief Wilson to execute the revocation, a singularly challenging and delicate assignment for the men of the Metropolitan Police Force. That was the plan on May 2nd, to break up the encampment. The police rolled out before dawn. The documentary says the police woke them up at 6 a.m. Indeed, many of the protesters were awoken and began to leave, even though the big protest would be the following day. Remember, this is May 2nd that they're being broken up from the party, the concert over uh, on the Potomac. The big day was the 3rd. So many people stuck around. They, they split up and they sort of dispersed into the city. They hid out in various locations around the city in order for them to not be caught. Many people from the park did leave, but many stuck around so that they could finish the May Day plan. Those who remained, over 10,000 protesters, were getting ready for the big day. Within hours, nearly 45,000 youths were cleared from the campsite. Most who left the park also left the city. Others who might have stayed for Monday's planned demonstration scattered to all parts of the district. The next day, May 3rd, the day the bridges and the roads were going to be blocked by the May Day protesters. Troops were flown in from around the country, Marines and paratroopers alike, all to support the Metropolitan Police Department, who were enacting a plan the government had created in the 60s to handle gatherings of this sort. Remember when I said the protesters were planning to start blocking roadways and major arteries on the 3rd? Well, the government used their own plan against them. On that same day, the government took over the bridges and roads themselves, preventing the protesters from leaving. They were trapped instead of blocking, as was their intention originally. Despite this, the protesters went about going after their plan anyway and began gathering to block roadways, their original action plans now being put into motion. The police, however, took a more direct response. Quote, After 8 a.m. on the morning of Monday, May 3rd, protesters attempted to block traffic on Canal Road, Reservoir Road, and Prospect Street. Metropolitan police responded with tear gas and pepper-based gas and drove many of them onto campus. Police helicopters also deployed gas. End quote. That quote is from Georgetown University, which of course is the university within the confines of Washington, D.C., where many of these protesters were. When they left the park on the Potomac that they had left the day before, many of them actually went to Georgetown. So a lot of these road blockings were happening there, and that is where the police were deploying a lot of their tear gas as well. But this was happening all over the city. It wasn't just at Georgetown. Demonstrators were arrested on site. Tear gas was exceedingly deployed by the police, and when jail cells filled up from the protesters, they started sending them to quote-unquote emergency detention centers, like the Washington Coliseum, a sporting venue in town. The inhumane conditions of the detentions would become apparent in the day after. No food, no water, no bathrooms, just mass detention for the protesters. This is how the documentary describes it, and it includes a detail that I find very interesting. Remember what we said earlier in the May Day Guide. They talked about being arrested. That was part of the outcome. It was something that they were thinking about. So here's what the documentary has to say. During this critical period, police maintained normal booking procedures to maximize the potential for successful prosecutions. At 6.23 a.m., Chief Wilson made the decision to discontinue the time-consuming process of using field arrest forms. Violators working in groups were ordered to disperse, to leave the area. Street, 
Warnings were given every two to three minutes by both cruiser loudspeaker and bullhorn. Those that ignored the opportunity were taken into custody without exception. By early afternoon, field arrest forms were reinstated and arrests totaled over 7,000, the largest single day arrest total recorded in American history. Our nation's capital does not possess facilities for detaining 7,000 prisoners. No government should stand ready to arrest and detain thousands of people at one time. When the police were forced to take action, they were also forced to use facilities which provided a minimum of security, shelter, and sanitation. This was what the demonstrators wanted. As stated in the manual, it greatly enhances our tactical position if the jails and detention facilities are filled with demonstrators. The specter of thousands of people jailed in the government's unsuccessful attempt to control May Day will graphically demonstrate the political isolation of the war-making government. Tens of thousands going to jail will make the choices painfully clear to America's rulers, end the war, or face social chaos. You heard that right, 7,000 people arrested. It is still considered the largest mass arrest in American history, 7,000 people. I bet your high school had a population of about 2,000 students. Triple that and then some, 7,000 people arrested in Washington, D.C. on May 3rd, 1971. And they were correct in their assessment of how this event would be perceived. The more prisoners that were being held in these emergency detention centers, the worse it looked for the police. Over the course of the several days of protest, 12,000 protesters were arrested, a number that did nothing but successfully prove the point of the organizers. The government was not listening to them. They created a disturbance and caught the public's attention. What's more, statistically, very few people actually faced any criminal ramifications from the protest. 12,000 arrests, including arrests for organizers of the event, and less than 100 people actually faced charges. That's less than 1% of the people arrested. Everyone else had charges dismissed or no charges pressed at all. Their intent of creating social chaos was successful. The protesting did not stop, and in fact, it pushed people to protesting even more. As discussed in that book I mentioned earlier, May Day 1971, one of the most significant effects of the protest was not only the attention it raised, but also the fact that when all was said and done, Washington, D.C. reduced the restrictions on protests in the 70s. Nixon, as president, was already unpopular, but with the tactics to stop the May Day protests, his stock in the American public only continued to plummet over a year before the Watergate scandal would ruin his reputation forever. May Day changed the conversation about how Americans could protest the war. Down in Florida, in the months after May Day, in the days after May Day, the protests continued, and soon the Gainesville 8 would provide a new lightning rod for conversation about how protests were to be held in the state of Florida. One such figure in this conversation was Scott Camel. I mentioned him earlier, one of the Gainesville 8. He had been a part of the protests against the Vietnam War long before the Gainesville 8 were arrested. There are photos of Camel marching through the streets in April of 1972, leading protesters from the University of Florida to the federal building in Gainesville. In May of 1971, 
10 days after the May Day protests, he spoke in front of the state legislature in Tallahassee, Florida. The Pensacola News Journal says, quote, A long-haired, bearded University of Florida student, Camel is an ex-Marine awarded two Purple Hearts for wounds received in Vietnam combat, end quote. Camel spoke before the legislation to demand the state support a full withdrawal from Vietnam. He was 25 at the time. When he joined up with the army, it wasn't from being drafted. He volunteered. He believed in the cause. About his change of heart from a volunteer to combat to an outspoken anti-war advocate, Camel said this, quote, I don't think I've been radicalized. I've been humanized, end quote. Over two years later, in August of 1973, Camel and his seven peers, the Gainesville Eight, began their trial. It played out for a few weeks of deliberation, but a headline in the Palm Beach Post-Times on September 1st, 1973 tells the tale. September 1st, just a month later, quote, youthful jury clears the Gainesville Eight, end quote. The article reads, quote, it took more than a year to prepare and a month to try the case, but yesterday the youthful jury in the Gainesville Eight conspiracy trial took only four hours to bring back an acquittal, end quote. According to this article, when the verdict was read, Scott Camel is quoted as saying, out of sight. <laughs> he is quoted in the Orlando Sentinel in the same day as saying the following, quote, This shows the government cannot be trusted. They lied, paid people to try to convict us, but without even presenting a defense, the jury saw the truth, end quote. Just as the 12,000 protesters of May Day walked away scot-free, so too did the Gainesville Eight, vindicated and having made their point. The war was no good. The more they tried to protest it, and the more there was pushbacks for it, the more people saw that there could be another way. That, that perhaps all these people were just trying to get you to listen. That no matter what the government was saying, that, that, that no matter how much they were trying to tell you that the war was necessary, the people believed otherwise. And they made their voices heard through these nonviolent actions, through protests, through making their voices heard, through consistency, through marches, through eloquent language, through believing in what they were fighting for, and it got across. It was not the last Vietnam protest, of course, we will certainly discuss more at some time in the near future, but the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War was over, with American troops fully pulling out in March of 1973. The reputation of the Vietnam War in American history, I think, speaks for itself. And just as these were not the last protests against Vietnam in Florida at the time, they were certainly not the last protests in Florida either. I'm sure you've seen more than your fair share. Protests about race and the environment have been a consistent trend over the last several decades, and more social issues have joined the conversation as the 21st century has arrived. Gay rights protests in Florida go back as far as the 1970s, hell, even before that, but the 1970s, they rose to prominence against Anita Bryant. If you want to hear more about that, listen to our episode called Don't Say Gay. It's about Florida's Don't Say Gay bill from last year to understand more about the gay rights protests here in Florida. Protests about the prevalence of mass shootings in the state of Florida have been a consistent source of student-led protest. Young people lead the charge in these conversations. With the Pulse shooting in 2016 and the Parkland shooting in 2018, Florida has been home to two of the deadliest mass shooting incidents in the country. Protests against guns, specifically the sorts of assault rifles used in these shootings, have been all over the state in the last decade. 
Gay rights advocates are extremely vocal about the anti-gay and anti-trans legislation going through the state government that is targeting many different groups in the LGBTQ plus community, especially many laws targeting the trans community here in Florida, actions that we will talk about more in depth this summer. And just this week, the Republican-dominated Florida legislature passed a bill that was signed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. In the signing of this bill, it banned abortion after six weeks, a highly controversial bill that has been passed across the country in other state legislatures after the Supreme Court last year overturned Roe v. Wade, which protected abortion rights in this country. Democratic legislators cite numbers that reflect that most Americans are not in favor of this sort of extreme abortion restriction. House Democratic Minority Leader Fentrice Driscoll is quoted in the Associated Press saying, quote, Have we learned nothing? Do we not listen to our constituents and to the people of Florida and what they are asking for? End quote. And it isn't just legislators making their voices heard, just as they always have. The people of Florida are making their voices heard about these actions being done by the Florida government. Early this month, a group of protesters, including politicians, were arrested while protesting the abortion bill when it passed the House. Quote, Democratic Party Chairwoman Nikki Freed and Senate Minority Leader Lauren Book were among a small group of protesters arrested late Monday near the state capitol building and charged with misdemeanor trespass. End quote. The footage of the protesters being arrested went viral. The protesters were apparently told they couldn't remain past sundown, but they remained anyway. The six-week ban on abortion that was signed by Ron DeSantis is going to be facing a lot of legal troubles as well, as Florida has a right to privacy, which we have talked about in the past and we will talk about more this upcoming summer. There's a lot of topics happening in Florida, things that are being done by the government that many people are feeling is not necessary and not even something that many voters are even concerned about. There are problems in Florida, certainly, but according to many voters and a lot of the protests and a lot of the Democratic leaders in this state, the things that the state government are focusing on are things that... If if they were passed would not actually improve the day-to-day -day life of Floridians. So it is becoming a more common trend. Floridians are seeing actual change that could be done or actions that are being done by the government that would push us backwards. And protesters are finding ways to make their voices heard in any way that they can. And as I read about the May Day protests, a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for months before these things that were going on in the state of Florida, I've been wanting to talk about this story, but the parallels they cannot be ignored just as 50 years ago the young people of florida high school students college students people who are after college and have experienced the world and still believe the change needs to be done they are leading the charge in these conversations to me there is just a crystal clear line between the civil rights protests of the 60s the anti-war movement of the 70s the other protests that have led us through the 20th century straight through to today the protests tell you one crucial thing the causes may change, but the people of Florida will damn sure find a way to make their voices heard. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and the previous episode about May Day. I am so glad that you are here. I'm so glad you stuck around for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or send the review to a friend who you think would enjoy this episode. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would like to hear more about this event that I'd not heard of. I'm sure many people haven't heard of this event in 1971. So share the episode. It would mean a lot to me. And 
While you're at it, go follow the show on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod or send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I want to shout out again the documentary that was used in this episode. I'll include a link. Go check out Periscope Film on YouTube. Go check out the documentary. I'll include a link to their YouTube and their website. So thank you to them for that wonderful documentary that they made available to everyone to enjoy. I'd also like to shout out one more time Mayday 1971 by Lawrence Roberts. It is a fairly recent book, so its history is very, very interesting. I would go check out a copy yourself. It is a fascinating read going into the nitty gritty of this event even more so way more so than we did today so go check out that book to learn even more about this crucial event in american history all the music used in this episode was originally composed unless it was involved in that documentary that you heard clips from other than that it is all originally composed all right folks we are reaching the end of our spring season which means that we're going to be taking a month off for the month of may but there will actually be one episode on Mayday, <laughs> hilariously, on May May 1st of this year, but we've got two episodes left. I'm excited for the episode that's going to be coming out on May 1st, but next week, we're going to bring back a, a format that we haven't done in a little while, a, a topic that, a, a sort of episode that I haven't done in a while, and I, I would really like to check in on real quick, which is go back through the episodes we've talked about this season and, and tell you some of the smaller stuff that I wasn't able to fit into the episode, because there's a lot of sort of little details. We've talked a lot about history this season, actually, so we're going to go back and talk about a lot of those things and we'll dive more in depth into the, the little nitty gritty details that include the, the the backstory of of these episodes that we've talked about this season and then this upcoming summer is going to be our fifth year anniversary season i'll tell you more about that later we're going to go on some trips we're going to talk to some old friends it's going to be a really exciting time but until then i'll be back at you next monday for the penultimate episode of this spring season until then be good to yourself be good to others drink more water and go gator and muddy the water have a great week i will see you next monday <laughs>